Today's sponsor is Audible.com, which has more than 180,000 audiobooks and spoken word audio products. Get a free audiobook of your choice at audible.com slash decode. Recode Radio presents Recode Decode, hosted by Kara Swisher, powered by digital media. Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, executive editor of Recode. You may know me as the person who told Mark Andreessen not to tweet about India, but in my spare time, I talk about tech, and you're listening to Recode Decode, a podcast about tech and media's key players, big ideas, and how they're changing the world we live in. You can subscribe to Recode Decode at iTunes.com slash Recode Decode, and while you're there, leave us a review. Today in the red chair is Orion Hindawi, the president and CEO of Tanium. Orion spoke with Recode senior enterprise editor Eric Hesseldahl, who's here with me in San Francisco. Hi, Eric. Hey. So tell me what uh, Tanium does, so I don't mispronounce it badly, but explain what the situation is, because it sounds like it's something you should be taking as part of a complete diet. Right, right, exactly. Tanium is one of those companies that I, I really like because they do something that at first seems really simple, but then when you drill into it, it gets really complex. Basically, mm-hmm. it's known as the unsexy moniker endpoint management. Basically, All right, that's really unsexy. So really can you not, explain what that means? You ask a computer what it's doing right now, who has access to it, what software it's running. And by computer, that could be a personal computer, could be a server, a printer, or a wearable Thing on a wrist or a sensor on so a So why is this important? Because you need to be able to know one of the most basic tasks you have in managing a big IT organization with hundreds and thousands or maybe even millions of these devices. You have to know what their status is. You have to be able to manage them and tell them what to do all at once. One of the biggest problems that IT managers have is that they just don't know how much stuff they have to manage. Right. And, and people putting apps on things and doing People and putting apps on things, people bringing their computers from home, and that creates all kinds of security problems. Yes. You know, a lot of those attacks happen because somebody's using an unmanaged device that hasn't been properly secured. Which happens all have the time. The, you can't ha- stop it, can you? It, you can't stop it, but if you figure out what's running on your network, then you can start to get a handle on the problem. Mm-hmm. And so that's so what does why, it do? Does like a red alert fire? Like when well, what it does is first it finds everything, and then you can once you know where everything is, you can make it. And say do, what the heck is that? Yeah, you can take care of what uh, Orion. You'll hear him talk about it in the interview. He talks about it as hygiene, basically mm-hmm. basic hygiene. Once you take care of basic things, yeah. you can solve the potential for a lot of problems. So it's one of the things around trying to stop all these hackings. Right? Exactly, exactly. So one of their big customers, their their customers tend to be banks mm-hmm. and big financial. companies companies, but then you see tech names like Amazon and eBay and Verizon, but they also do really well in government, uh, which as we've seen at Office of Personnel Management, more recently Department of Homeland Security, they have really big hacking problems. They did. So we talk about that quite a bit too. Yeah, but don't they all use Blackberries? They all use Blackberries and (laughs) that sort of things, but uh, I don't know. (laughs) All right. Well, then this sounds really interesting. So now let's take a listen to what you and Orion talked about. Thanks, Kara. I'm here with Orion Hindawi, the founder and CEO of Tanium. In broad brushstrokes, it's kind of a security software company, but it does a lot more interesting things than that. It's probably best known as uh, one of the single, probably the single largest investment by the venture capital firm, Andreessen Horowitz. We'll get into that. But Orion, thanks for joining us. I wanted to just kind of start with Tanium at a high level. What does it actually do? Because it seems to me you do something very simple with it, but then it branches off into something that gets really complex really fast. So yeah. explain that for me. No, I think that's actually a really good description. So if you look at the very high-level view of what we do, we've got a architecture that allows very large managed networks. So you think about big government, big banks, big retail environments to answer very basic questions. So how many computers do you have? What are they doing right now? Who's logged into them? Where's your data? 
Where are your vulnerabilities? These are kind of the building blocks, kind of, if you want to think about it, table stakes in IT, in what many people call, you know, security or operations. And the problem that many companies have had is that they historically have been using 25-year-old tools to do these things. And because those tools didn't adapt to the new environment with things like cloud and mobility and virtualization, they haven't been able to answer these basic questions. And because they can't answer how many computers they have. I mean, I mean, literally, I talk to CIOs on a regular basis who will tell me that they think they have between 200 and 400,000 computers or maybe 50 to 100,000 computers. And that's how much they know about the environment they're supposed to manage. And then they're being instructed not to get breached, which means every computer needs to be secured. And they don't even know how many computers they have. So we start them by telling them what they have. And then we allow them to start fixing the problems that we're finding. So vulnerabilities that they have in their environment, applications that they shouldn't have there, attackers who are successfully exploiting their users to get access to the data that they should be protecting. And then we take it even further into optimization of the environment, figuring out where their network is and how it should change and a bunch of other kind of more advanced things. That's a pretty fundamental question. I mean, if you think you have 200,000 endpoints, and when you're talking computers, you're not just talking PCs on a desktop, you're talking servers, printers, et cetera. What, what else kind of falls into that endpoint jurisdiction from you? Sure. Many of our customers are using this to manage their point-of-sale devices, their heart rate monitors and CAT scanners, their cameras and their fulfillment centers, and their door locks in some cases. I mean, if you think about what we used to call a computer was that thing that was on your desk, and what we're starting to realize because of breaches like Target is that anything that's got an operating system and a chip in it is actually vulnerable and is actually a really good place for an attacker to exploit lack of hygiene. So if you're not patching your computers, if you're not assessing them, that's a good way in for an attacker to, to come in and steal your data. And so what a lot of our customers, the reason that they can't answer how many computers they have is that they always used to look at this small set of things that were sitting on people's desks that they were actually typing into and now they're realizing that it's a much bigger world than that. Interesting. So then the Tanium customer comes to you. They install the software on the network. And, and what happens? What is it that they can do that they couldn't do before? So the first thing they can do is figure out what they haven't installed on. So you start by installing on everything you know how to reach. And then the first thing the system does is identifies everything else in the network that you didn't install it on. So all those printers that you didn't know about, all of those machines that people brought in from home and connected to your network, all of the machines that for some reason aren't being administered that should be. And many of our customers, the first time that they install us, realize that 30 or 40% of the computers that are on their network are unmanaged. So 30 to 40%. So that's that's right. almost half of what they discovered that they have they didn't even know was there. So to make that more concrete, we have a customer who installed us on 400,000 computers and found out they had 175,000 extra computers that were on their network transiting data, in many cases touching their customer data, that weren't being managed. So you think about the scope and scale of how bad the information is a lot of people have when we start. There's a huge opportunity to optimize because they're paying for those computers. They're paying for the network that those computers are on and the software that's running on them they have a huge liability with the data that's on them because if it leaks, it comes back to the organization. 
And there are 175,000 ways out of that network that weren't being managed before. Mm-hmm. And when you say managed, that's, that's bringing it under the official IT infrastructure regime so you can plug the security holes and, and things of that nature. So those all sound like they could be basically hacks waiting to happen, essentially. Yeah. I mean, many of those computers turned out to have 20 or 30 critical vulnerabilities on them. So what a critical vulnerability is, is a way for someone with no creativity to take control of that computer. So we're talking about millions of critical vulnerabilities across that spectrum that are ways into a large bank. And by and large, are these machines that people bring from home or these things that get installed just on the fly because of convenience or short-term need or what? All of the above. I mean, a lot of the old systems are notoriously prone to failure. So you install the system on that machine and then six months later it stops working and it kind of falls out of your sphere of influence. You just don't see it anymore. And the problem is the user who's on that machine doesn't know that that happened. So often they're still plugging away, gathering data from your customer database and then bringing it back to their machine and working on it. And vulnerabilities are piling up and users are unaware that that's happening, so they keep on doing things that really expose their organization. And sometimes it is Bob in accounting who you know, rebuilt his computer because he doesn't like the computer he got at work and brings it in and plugs it in and then takes it home and lets his kid play with it and brings it back in. And the problem is every time it goes home, it has the chance to contract all kinds of wonderful things and bring them back into the organization. Mm-hmm. So your customers tend to be who? So most of our customers are very large banks, retail customers. So you think about the large retailers, almost all of them use Tanium. You look at a lot of the big manufacturers, a lot of large global governments. So you, you know, basically we're global 2000 and large federal. And that's the way that you've gotten the product installed has led to in kind of some unexpected directions. We've talked about this previously, but once your customers start using it, they start learning more about their systems, they learn that they can do some things that they couldn't do before. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Yeah. I mean, so really fundamentally, if you look at security, there are two things everyone knows they should be doing that they never were able to do before. So the first one is basic hygiene. So I know I'm supposed to deploy my patches every month. I know that when there's a vulnerability that Microsoft announces, for example, I'm supposed to get on that. I need to figure out where it is, and then I need to plug it as quickly as I can. Most companies, it turns out, weren't doing that. They were trying, but their tools were broken, so they were missing a lot of the patches. We often get into environments where there are millions or tens of millions of known critical patches that weren't deployed. And it's the same thing for disk encryption and multi-factor authentication and all the things we've been talking about for the last 20 years as an industry that people know they were supposed to do, but they just couldn't get done because their tools were broken. And so one of the first things they learn with Tanium is you press a button in Tanium and you tell 10,000 machines or 100,000 machines to do something and they do it in three minutes. Instead of waiting a month and finding out they didn't do it on half those machines, which is their normal experience. So that's the first thing is getting the hygiene right. And the second one is they can share intelligence about the newest attacks that they're seeing much more quickly than they could in the past. So We have in the security industry this idea of indicators of compromise, which are essentially documents that describe an attack that succeeded somewhere else. So you think about the target attack, the output of that attack was an indicator of compromise that described, here are the things that happened to us. And the first question that most people want to be able to ask if they're an IT administrator in a different company is, is that happening here? 
everybody basically asks, I don't want to be the next Target. How or the next Home Depot or the next J.P. Morgan or the next Anthem. I mean, there's nothing that happened to Target that isn't happening to every customer out there. They just happen to catch it. Mm-hmm. And it happened to be really, really bad in their case, so everybody knows about it, but it's happening everywhere. And the point I'd make is there are tens of thousands of these indicators of compromise that are being announced every day. And the question is, do we have any of those 10,000 things happening right now? And historically, because systems are so slow, they couldn't answer that question. With Tanium, people can answer that question in seconds, which allows them to know, are we being breached the same way? And if we are... Let's go figure out how to stop that now. And finally, we have a tool that can actually stop something in seconds instead of in days or weeks. Mm-hmm. And then that's led to extensions as well. I mean, the customers, your customers are actually coming back and asking you for additional things, aren't they? They are, and sometimes they're writing them themselves. So one of the things that we're really proud of with Tanium is that we have a true platform. So a lot of people say platform, and what they mean is product, right? So platform sounds better, but... Mm-hmm. What a platform really should be is something where you can extend it, where you can rest other things on top of it, and it really takes care of a lot of the workload for you. So to give you an example, we have customers all the time that are coming back to us and saying that they authored things called sensors to detect interesting things about products that they wrote themselves. Go and look at log files in a different way than we're used to and collect data, or go out and find some new kind of security input that they want to be able to track. And what's beautiful about Tanium is if you know how to write scripts, basically, you can extend the system very easily. So many of our customers are writing their entire workflows that have nothing to do with what we designed the tool to do because the platform works well for them. And then in addition to that, we create modules every quarter. So every three months, we release another thing that basically absorbs another use case into the platform with out-of-the-box capability. So whole workflow around a use case that people really care about. So we were talking about patch management or indicator of compromise analysis or forensics or things like protection on the endpoint. Each one of those is a module. These are all things that you've added onto the product with help from and suggestions in some cases from the from the customer. Absolutely. And in some cases we write them with our customers. Yeah. Yeah. That was an interesting story. You, you, which one was it that we talked about prior that you actually worked with the customer on it? So literally every one of those was written oh. with a customer. But, you know, what's interesting about some of these, like patch management, is that we will come together with a workflow that they essentially built with us. And then we'll go find three other customers who are really deeply invested in this idea that Tanium is going to help them optimize their workflow. And they'll have 10 more ideas. And essentially what we can do is use our customers as the subject matter experts to help us build something that then every other customer is going to see as complete. So it's, it's a huge advantage for us. We have... Out of all the numbers that I'm proud of with Tanium, and you know, we've built a company that I think we're all very proud of, but we have a 99.7% renewal rate. Our customers actually come back to us every year because we listen to them. And that means that they're invested in making sure that these modules are better every year because they know they're going to be with us next year. Right here, we have to take a quick break. Here's Kara. Thanks, Eric. If you're always on the go like myself and don't have time to sit down and read, Audible.com is a great source to be able to catch up on the latest bestsellers. Listen to it while on the road or at the gym. Audible.com is a leading provider of premium digital spoken audio information and entertainment on the internet. Audible Contact includes more than 180,000 audiobooks and spoken word audio products. Audible carries audiobooks in every genre imaginable, business, classics, history, and self-development, just to name a few. Audible is offering our listeners a free audiobook of your choice and a free 30-day trial membership. Just go to audible.com slash decode and choose from over 180,000 audio programs. 
Download a title free and start listening. It's that easy. Go to audible.com slash decode. That's audible.com slash decode and get started today. Back to you, Eric. Thanks, Kara. We're back with Orion Hindawi of Tanium. I wanted to ask you about the federal government. You have federal customers, yes? We do. And uh, we see this in the news so often. I've covered some of them. The federal government seems to be kind of a open season for hackers of various stripes, whether they're state motivated, whether they're you know somebody that just wants to make trouble. Office of Personnel Management was the big one last year. Just this month, we saw one at Department of Homeland Security. You do a lot of business with federal agencies. Why is it that they have this problem? I've asked basically in my own copy, you know, why does the federal government suck at cybersecurity? So there are a couple interesting things about the federal space. So the first one is they actually have nation state attackers. So you take a step back and you think about, I mean, I go into CIO meetings all the time and everybody's convinced that they're constantly being attacked by Russia who are coming in through the skylights and ninjing into their network and it's well known in commercial that 99.9% of the attacks are based on known vulnerabilities that don't require any creativity, that if they'd patched them, they basically wouldn't have been attacked successfully. The federal government is one of the exceptions. So you look at some of the biggest banks, you look at some of the big defense contractors, and you look at federal as the places where nation states actually are attacking. And so they've got an even higher bar that they have to get to. And unfortunately, the way that regulation is structured and the way that the integrator system on the federal side, and I'll be happy to kind of explain that in a second, is structured means that they actually are getting a lot worse security in many cases than our commercial customers. So to give you an idea of what I mean by that, so there's a contract called CDM, continuous monitoring on the civilian side of our federal government. And the standard they're trying to enforce there is that people get to three-day old knowledge of what's happening in their environment. So A good attacker can get in and out in minutes, maybe hours, and what they're trying to get to is three-day-old visibility on their environment. Most of the CIOs I know in commercial would vomit all over that. Like That's just completely the wrong standard. Everybody knows that. But the reason that the federal government is cleaving to a standard that everybody knows isn't good enough is that there are a bunch of integrators and big vendors who've essentially gamed the system. They've got this procurement process. They threaten things called protests so they can say that if you select somebody else, probably somebody who's better for you than my product, then I'm going to sue you. This is what a lot of these big vendors are telling the procurement agents on the federal side. And as a result, they water down their standards to the point where even if they meet them, they're not good enough. And they know that. There are a lot of really good people working in this problem on the federal side who are super frustrated because they're being asked to use tools that literally nobody else in the world is willing to testify is good enough anymore. They're literally using two generations old technologies in some cases. And what I will say is there's this mythology that there are a lot of people there that don't care. They deeply care and they're extremely competent. They're being hobbled by tools that just don't work. So is this a legislative problem or is this a culture problem that needs to be fixed? I think it's both. So the first point I would make is our system needs to, from the top down, enforce that the government be better than the commercial sector at security. What they should be doing is going to all of the CIOs of large institutions and asking what the standards are that they're forcing their people to stick to and do better than that. And the reason that I say that is A lot of these CIOs have way less money to spend on this problem. And frankly, as a citizen of this country, I mean, 
the scariest things that can happen are all on the federal side. It's not on the commercial side. It would be terrible if a bank was breached. It would be much more terrible if the DOD was breached. And I want them to be empowered to select the technologies they know will allow them to be better than any commercial vendor or any commercial company. And instead, the standards are hobbling them. And so I'd like to be really clear. I don't lay the blame at the feet of the people who are actually pressing the buttons or the people even who are making the decisions on what to buy. The blame is on the side of how they're procuring these things, where they're being forced to select things they know are suboptimal because lowest cost viable option is the way that they're selecting them instead of let's go figure out what's best for us. And it's an endemic problem in the procurement process. So it seems that what you're basically saying is that the people making the decisions have an incentive to pick the less good product to protect the system that that does the people's business, essentially. The people who are making the decisions are being encouraged to select the product from the vendors who can cause the most problems for them legally instead of the vendors who can supply them with the best products, That's which that's, doesn't make any sense at all. As a citizen, I think I'd be kind of outraged at that well, about the way that... And, and how much... I don't know. I mean, do you track how much federal government spends on IT security and oh, this yeah. sort of thing? No, I, I mean, we look at a lot of the spend, and usually what they'll end up doing is kind of consoling everybody by buying a little here and a little there when they know that some of those buckets are completely useless. I mean, there are point solutions that basically are only sold in federal now because on the commercial side, people refuse to buy them. There are products that only the federal government will buy because the private sector will not buy them. The private sector has already moved on, and yet because these guys are very effective at lobbying or they're very effective at protesting, they're still getting business when they shouldn't. So how deep is the hacking problem in government? I mean, we've seen the cases that have come to light. OPM was the one, Office of Personal Management, was the one where basically every federal government employee who'd ever worked back to the 70s for the federal government, their information, their personal information, was released in some way. Mm-hmm. I think that was attributed to China in some fashion, at least uh, I think Harry Reid said on the floor of Congress and he, I think, is one of the officials who would know that it was attributed to China. But is that just the tip of the iceberg in your estimation, or is the problem worse? I think people are getting better at knowing that they were breached. And I think that the big reason that people are realizing that there's kind of this inflection curve a couple of years ago where we weren't hearing about many breaches and then suddenly we were hearing about a lot of them actually wasn't because breaches weren't happening 10 years ago. It was because the tools weren't advanced enough to actually see them. And What we're starting to see is a huge emergence in a cadence of attacks that are successful. We've got them coming in from nation states, which makes sense, because if you think about the data that they're stealing, I mean, either from the federal government or from defense contractors, if you can steal the plans for a plane, you don't have to develop all those plans yourself. That's potentially billions of dollars of R&D and years of research that you can just cut out of the process. And similarly, on the other side, if you wanted to go and figure out who's the most likely to be blackmailed person on a project, one of the best data sources you could possibly have is the whole clearance process around the people who are cleared in federal government. These are really juicy data sources. There aren't that many places in commercial where you can get something that good. And the bottom line is, I think all of the nation states are playing this game, and we are too. And when I say we, the U.S. government is doing it, and I think everybody else is doing it. It's, you know, the new kind of version of war. 
So then the solution, if you could fix the problem optimally and, and kind of uh, the president hands you, uh, you're the federal IT czar for two years, how would you fix it? So it's a really hard problem because there's so much incumbency of things that have built up over time. But the first thing you want to do is make sure that you're following all the best practices we've known about for the last 20 years. So you don't have to be super creative. Everyone knows who's in IT security what the pediments of IT security are supposed to be. So we're talking about things like disk encryption, multi-factor authentication, doing patching correctly, knowing where your data is. I mean, I've had this discussion literally for the last 20 years. And the interesting thing about it is if you asked me 10 years ago, what are the five things I should do? They'd be the same answers as I'd give you today, right? It's, it's the same thing. The problem is the networks are five times bigger, right? You've got way more IoT and embedded devices all over the place. You've got more data. You've got more users. You've got more mobility. So the whole landscape got more complex, but the fundamental things you're supposed to do are the same as they were 10 years ago. And what I would do is go and rationalize down, here are the systems I trust that actually work in this new landscape that we have. And they're none of the systems that are 25 years old. I mean, the irony of this whole scenario is a lot of both companies and governments are relying on tools that were invented before mobility virtualization and cloud computing to try and manage things that are in the cloud, that are mobile, and that are virtual. Of course they don't work. So the first thing I would do is re-rationalize my tools so that I would figure out what actually works in the landscape I have and then enforce all the things I was supposed to have been doing this whole time. Patch all my computers, know where my data is, who's logging in. I mean, identity management is really important. But this isn't news to anybody who's been around for the last 10 years. We've all known this 10 years ago. Let's just do it. We need to take another break. Here's Kara with a word from Walker Corporate Law and SoFi. Thanks, Eric. Are you an entrepreneur or startup looking for legal help with your financing, acquisition, or incorporation? If so, then you should consider checking out Walker Corporate Law. Walker Corporate Law is a different kind of law firm. Unlike traditional law firms, they only have lawyers with 10 to 25 years of experience, which means you're going to get personal attention from a senior lawyer, not a junior lawyer getting on-the-job training. They also encourage fixed fees because they believe when lawyers bill by the hour, it rewards inefficiency. So check them out at walkercorporatelaw.com, or you can call the founder, Scott Walker, at 415-979-9999. That's walkercorporatelaw.com or 415-979-9999. We'd also like to thank SoFi. SoFi is a new kind of company that's about to send shockwaves, the good kind hopefully, through the financial world. They've decided that banks aren't going to fix banking, so they've brought some smart thinking to the table. Unlike big banks, SoFi is progressive, nimble, and innovative. They don't judge their members based on a FICO score. Instead, they look at their potential, and if they show promise, they'll back them for life. And because SoFi is totally unlike a bank, they provide services and rates that banks can't. So if you're looking for a financial partner that does a whole lot more than finance, visit SoFi.com. That's S-O-F-I.com. Terms and conditions apply at SoFi.com. Back to you, Eric. Thanks, Kara. And we're back with more from Orion Hindawi of Tanium. When we talked last year, I thought this was really interesting. We got to talking about something that you called the Silicon Valley monoculture. And part of that was why you chose to, you know, for the first several years that you were running this company, your only outside investor was Andreessen Horowitz. And they've invested, what, 140-odd million, yep. more than half of, of your outside investment. Is their single biggest investment. And that was a deliberate choice on your part. 
that you made for particular reasons. The reason, you said, was Silicon Valley monoculture. And, and I thought that was an interesting thought. What is, in your view, what is Silicon Valley monoculture? Why is it a bad thing and why were you trying to avoid it? So I'll give a bit of history on how we founded Tanium just to put some perspective here. So David and I, my co-founder and I, who's also my father, mm -hmm. uh, we founded a company called Big Fix 18 years ago. And we were lucky enough to sell that right around the time that we started Tanium. And that gave us a luxury of doing something that I don't see in Silicon Valley very often, which is actually build a real product and invest the time to get it right before you go to market. So we spent five years from 2007 to 2012 building something with 12 engineers who were really focused on building a platform that we knew would work and putting in the time to actually make it right before we shipped it. And then we went to market with it and we've been cash flow positive since 2012 when we shipped it every quarter up until now. And we continue to be cash flow positive. That is a very different story than Silicon Valley encourages. And just to flavor that a little bit more, we took our first money in 2014 from Andreessen. And we took a lot of money from Andreessen. And subsequently, we raised more money. And we haven't used any of that money. Right? We have it in the bank. And the reason we have it in the bank is for exactly the scenario that we're about to go into right now, which is potentially a downturn of a market and definitely a market that is... Uh, not very positively inclined to companies that are just profligate with their money, throwing it all over the place. Now, compare that to what the Silicon Valley kind of mold is, right? So if you go to a venture capitalist and you ask them over a beer, what is the company you expect to fund next month? The business plan is we have a cool idea. We hire just reams of people, we throw them at this problem, we try and build every department at the same time because we don't have the patience to build something that is methodically built. You know, I mean, there's no point in having a sales team until you have a product. There's no point in having a marketing team, and yet many companies that I've seen hire their marketing and sales before they hire their head of engineering. They literally want to get ready to sell something they don't have, and that's how they start their company. And then they hire teams of people, and I literally was talking to somebody who was supposed to be managing a team of 12 engineers, he was hired the same day that all 12 of them were hired. They got a new problem, they were thrown into a room, and they said, go fix it. Or go create it. You can't do that. That's not how great products are created. And so the Silicon Valley culture encourages really fast-moving, less deliberation than necessary in many cases, a lot of spend, right? huge burn rates. I mean, there are companies in the security market that are burning $100 million a year. That's completely and totally unsustainable. And frankly, it really doesn't give a lot of confidence to customers. They're looking at a company, and they don't know if it's going to be there in two years. And yet, you're and supposed to invest your time making it work. And depending on the mood of the valley at any given time, that can sometimes be seen as almost a successful company. Absolutely. Strangely. I mean, right Absolutely. now, maybe not so much. but Well, so that's, that's the problem is that the musical chairs in the valley keeps on stopping every 10 years. Right? We have this musical chairs things, and sometimes it's faster than that where everyone's encouraged to run around in circles as aggressively as they can, and then one day funding dries up. And the reason funding dries up is that everybody realizes that the party was just too good. Like, everybody is drinking pink coconut water, everybody is in their nap pod, everyone's playing foosball, no one's creating anything, and these companies all grind to a halt. And we saw this in 2008, and we saw it in 2001, and we've seen it before, right? And the problem with Silicon Valley is it listens to itself too much. So we all tell each other that we are innovating everything and that all the big companies are going to disappear. 
and that there won't be a car company ever again because Apple and Google and Tesla are going to completely outmode it. And we forget about the fact that we've said this before. Like we, we've said this about everything before. And yet those companies all still exist because it turns out that we can't just snap our fingers and suddenly out-innovate the rest of the world to the extent that the rest of the world disappears. And we can't spend so much money doing it that we expect everybody to keep on giving us hundreds of millions of dollars a year to fund our basically profligate lifestyles. That just doesn't work. And it's funny that we keep on having to relearn this lesson. Too, too much coconut water. So do you avoid things like that over at Tanium? And I mean, what's, you have to compete for talent like everybody else, and a lot of that competition comes down to you know, perks like the coconut water and the foosball tables and such like that. But, but uh, how, do you, how do you do it differently? I have never found that people who are incented by making work fun are very successful in companies like ours. So what people who come to Tanium come to Tanium for is a mission that they care about. We protect a lot of the Department of Defense. We protect a lot of the big banks, a lot of the big retailers. You drive down the street and you see logos, and you know that we're standing behind those companies. And the reason that a lot of our people come working at Tanium and the reason that we've never lost an engineer in the history of Tanium, the reason that we have very low attrition rates in the rest of the company is that we pre-screen our people for people who really care about that mission, who want to help our customers, who really deeply believe that if we don't do a good job with this, our way of life is at risk. And no amount of coconut water is going to make them want to come to work more or less if that's why they're coming to work. And what we found in a lot of companies is, I mean, I have friends who've quit companies in San Francisco because they didn't have literally the nap pod close enough to their desk. So the nap pod was moved away from a guy I know's desk and he quit the company because he thought it was a personal affront to him that he wasn't able to nap as easily at work as he thought he should be able to. It's ridiculous. <laughs> So while that's ridiculous, I will bet you that most people who live in San Francisco know somebody with a similar story. And the reason that they can get away with that is many of these companies run a lifestyle for their employees rather than a service for their customers. That's how you lose that much money. And the reality is people who work at Tanium work there because they really want on their tombstone to be able to say that they did something that mattered. And a lot of the companies in San Francisco aren't even trying to do that. If you ask their CEO, they're going to say that the reason that we're doing this in his heart of hearts is because he's hoping somebody will give him a lot more money to keep on running that lifestyle. And he gets to fly on a private jet, and they get really nice food in the office, and he forgot about the actual mission, which is to build something that matters. So my people came to us because they want to build something that matters. They don't really give a shit about the coconut water. So... Then where do you think we are? I mean, in the cycle as we are. I mean, the markets are down. We've seen a lot of the. the I've been watching the SaaS companies in particular lately. They're they're down, you know, by a third or more yep. just this year. You know, oil prices and all that sort of thing. So, what are you hearing about worries from your customer base at the moment? Our customers are telling us that they want us to prove that we're going to be sustainable. And Tanium has a really easy answer for that. We're growing over two hundred percent year over year on headcount, on revenue, on ARR, on basically any metric you can find, and we're cash flow positive in the process. If you can tell somebody that, then there's really no question left. We've got $350 million in the bank, and we're not using any of it. We're actually accreting to it every quarter. People who are in business understand what I just said and think that's a company I can trust. You look around at a lot of the companies around here, and their answer is we have eight months of burn. Until we go bankrupt, 
And I was just talking to a VC recently, and he told me that he hasn't made an investment in the last three months. And the reason is he's frozen in place. He can't see anybody who looks like they're going to get out of this. So what I'm seeing is a lot of companies around here that aren't going to be here in three years. Either they're going to be swallowed up by, for pennies on the dollar, and I don't think a lot of people fully understand, even after good technologies went out, after a couple of these, how bad it is for the employees when a company that used to be worth X is sold for a quarter of X. Because what ends up happening is with preference, the VCs get their money back and nobody else gets anything. I think there are going to be a lot of very damaged psyches in the city. And frankly, if you're working for a company that looks a lot like that, that's burning money left and right and is being pretty profligate and hoping that somebody else is going to go pick up the bag because they aren't going to be able to carry it for much more than eight months or a year, that's a real kind of awakening. People need to pay attention to that. I'm curious about what you think of some of your rivals slash competitors in the in the security space. I mean, they've had kind of a tough time too. I mean, uh, FireEye in particular, and I've interviewed Kevin Mandia, mm-hmm. who is over there, uh, Dave DeWalt. That was a company that was very much seen on the rise um, and uh, came out as an IPO fairly early. Um, there's been others that have had all kinds of difficulties. Uh, Norris has been having some difficulties lately. What do you think is happening with security companies? I mean, sure. there are so many of them. There was kind of a new generation. Yours is one of them, obviously, that were showing very a lot of promise. Mm-hmm. But is the promise not getting delivered with some of them? And sure. What's happening? So this is going to be a really harsh statement. There are two groups of companies in security. There are companies that are making good products, and there are companies that don't seem to care about their products. So... There are a lot of companies where if you look at their sales and marketing spend, it increased every year, every quarter, and R&D is flat. You can't make great products if you don't spend money to actually research them and develop them. There are a lot of companies that became services companies effectively. I mean, I have a lot of respect for Kevin Mandy. I think he runs a great shop there. But he can't carry FireEye. And the fact of the matter is FireEye by itself, the actual product set, has gotten worse every quarter since they went public at least, probably before then. Customers realize it. They can't pay premium prices for products that don't deliver. And I think a lot of the companies in security are just basically telling their customers every month, my black box works, you should trust me, right? Pass all your traffic through my black box, whatever it is, and I'm just automatically gonna make the world better. And the problem is customers are smarter now. They actually know what they're buying and they can compare two different products So compare and contrast FireEye and Palo Alto. Palo Alto makes great products. We use them internally at Tanium, right? We partner closely with them because we trust that they will deliver good technology to their customers. Splunk is another good company where people really believe that they work. And then on the other side, you've got a bunch of companies that were playing a shell game and you can't play that forever. And the truth of the matter is customers aren't going to put up with it. So then what evolves? I mean, you say customers are getting smarter. I mean, there was a period where I was always really, I would hear from a new security company and I'd basically wonder if I was being pitched snake oil because I'm not in a position to really evaluate the claims per se other than to talk to them about the nature of the problem and how it is they go about solving it. Um, So are you seeing smarter customers now and are they getting ahead of the security problem? I mean, you know, we haven't gone a a week without word of another breach here and there. So I would decouple the fact that we're hearing about breaches and whether security is getting better. And the reason that I say that is the better your detection capabilities, the more likely it is that you're going to find out that you were breached. So 
they can actually be getting better and we could hear about more breaches. That isn't incongruous. But customers are getting better in two ways. The first is they've tested enough of the new age security products. I mean, it used to be that you bought antivirus and you prayed. That was your security posture, right? Or a firewall. Or a firewall and antivirus or maybe hips or some of these, you know, a little bit more complex things, but they're all 20 years old, right? Now, people have had five years to look at next-gen technologies and learn how to evaluate them and actually get things like honeypots working so that they can go and capture attacks and replay them against technologies. We've got things like VirusTotal and repositories where people are finding malware and making it available to other people. And what we're finding is a lot of our customers, instead of just blindly trusting, are doing two things. One is they're testing. The second is they're talking to each other. So you can't go and buy a technology at enterprise scale without getting a reference. And I think a lot of customers are starting to get wise to the fact that they should go and find the reference instead of waiting for the company to supply them with one shill who will say that the product works. Let's go and talk to our peers. Let's figure out what they're doing that's working. And so, you know, what we've seen on in our market is we have a customer like a JP Morgan who've been a fantastic customer, who've been able to help us testify that Tanium works. And as a result of that, a lot of other banks are starting to realize that there's an opportunity for them to really upgrade their posture because Tanium isn't kind of a flash in the pan, but instead is something that a big company can testify really works in their space. We've seen the same thing in manufacturing, the same thing on the government side, the same thing on you know healthcare in each one of our verticals. And as a result of that, customers are getting better information. So my marketing is not what I sell my customers. What I sell my customers is my product. And frankly, our customers are better marketing for us than any marketing we could ever produce anyway. You're interesting. I went to look at your website just before we sat down to record this. And typically what I see in security companies is that they don't identify their customers. It's almost something you never see. Sure. You do. And that's, I find that curious because it's unusual. Um, and also, you know, typically security customers don't want to flag to the bad guys what it is they're using to give them any hints that, you know, how they might get through or whatever the case sure. may be. Why are you different in that way, I guess, is what I'm asking. So there are a couple things there. So the first one is our customers are proud they use Tanium. In many cases, it was a really strategic investment on their side to upgrade their whole posture in IT. And I think that they realize that it differentiates them. Now, on the flip side of that, if you look at our big banking customers, I mean, 15 of the top 20 banks are using Tanium and are public about it. So at a certain point, you get to the point where you've got critical mass. And at that point, you really don't have any kind of exposure admitting that you use something because everyone else does too. But I'll say something else, which is the reason that our customers are willing to let us use their logos is because we deliver. If we stop doing that, they won't want to be associated with us. And there are a lot of companies in security that are always on the knife's edge of relevance. And I think our customers believe that we actually make something that will benefit them for the foreseeable future, where they see us really caring about their success and they're proud to associate themselves with us as much as we are with them. And really, if you want to talk about my core mission, it's to keep that going as we grow. Because as you grow, a lot of people get cynical and they start focusing on revenue more than they start focusing on customer success and they start confusing what success is. And I do literally a customer reference a day where I will call a customer and ask them what's working, what's not working. Tell me what I could do better for you. I don't know many CEOs who do that. And when I stop doing that, I don't deserve to be able to use their logo. And frankly, they probably won't be happy with our service. And at that point, shame on me. So let's talk about the longer term mission. I mean, you've got 
quite a bit of money in the bank. So, you know, as a capital event, you don't need to do an IPO. You could probably run as a privately held company for, you know, several years and, and be plenty happy. Is that what you're going to do? Or do you anticipate someday going to the private markets when the markets turn back upward? Or what's your outlook there? Today, being a public company doesn't look that fun. Uh, today, if you look, the day we're recording this, the markets are up a little, down a little, but really the trend has not been very friendly. I think the regulation has been really abusive to smaller public companies. I think a lot of companies at this point, I know this because I talked to their CEOs, regret going public. Now, the flip side is one of the big reasons they went public is they needed the money. If you're losing $100 million a year or $400 million a year, you don't have a choice. There's no one who's going to keep on giving you hundreds of millions of dollars a year other than the public market, and even that has stopped. And so a lot of people went public because they had to or because they believed that there was a huge amount of reputational benefit to them, which I think, frankly, is not proving out these days either because people are watching companies get halved in value every three months and worrying about their solvency, essentially. But the reason to go public, and we will go public, is because it's fair to my employees and it's fair to my investors. My investors have been unbelievable. You talked about Andreessen Horowitz. They've been a huge supporter of Tanium, and I think some of the value they've provided us has really been seminal to our ability to execute. And it's fair to them and their LPs to be able to go and liquidate their holding after a while. I think some of our other investors have been tremendous. We owe to them to be able to give them some liquidity event, and our employees as well. I mean, many of our employees have been with us for the last six or seven years, some of them eight years. I want those people to be able to reap the rewards of their hard work. But the flip side is going public today, and it's academic because no one's going public today, but even if there were people, it wouldn't be a very friendly environment, and I don't want to put my people through that either. So this year probably not. Next year, 2018? Do you, so, even have a, do you even have a calendar, a date on the calendar? I can uh, <laughs> say I don't know, and you'll probably believe me. But look, the reality of the situation is I think if I could predict the markets well enough to know when a friendly market would be here, I would be in a different job. And I think nobody really knows. What I do know is if I build a great company that continues growing, that keeps on delivering something that our customers really value, and our employees still feel like they're being appreciated for the hard work that they're putting in, we're in a better place just with that sentence than 99.9% of the companies out there. And I have a lot of faith that we're going to be able to navigate. But over time, yeah, I'd like to be able to go public because I'd like to be able to see smiles out of all the people who worked really hard or trusted us with hundreds of millions of dollars, which you know doesn't happen very often in one's life. So you kind of have to appreciate it. Orion, it's always really great to talk with you. I appreciate you coming by today. And uh, so I'm going to hand it back over to Kara. Thanks, Eric, and thanks for a great interview. If you enjoyed this interview as much as I did, be sure to subscribe to the show. Be the first to listen to future episodes or catch up on previous episodes, including some really fantastic interviews that I've done with Jeff Weiner, Hans Vestberg, and Mike Cagney, just to name a few. You can find all those interviews and more at recode.net slash decode. Don't miss our other podcast, Recode Replay, Too Embarrassed to Ask, and our newest podcast, Recode Media with Peter Kafka. You can find them all at recode.net slash podcasts. Thanks for listening. This has been another episode of Recode Decode. Remember to subscribe to the show and leave us a review at iTunes.com slash Recode Decode. You can hear Peter Kafka this Thursday on the Recode Media Podcast. I'll be on Too Embarrassed to Ask this Friday with Lauren Good of The Verge, and then back here on Recode Decode on Monday with another great guest. This has been Recode Decode, hosted by Kara Swisher. 
powered by digital media. For more hard-hitting interviews with insiders from the worlds of tech, media, and politics, subscribe to Recode Replay on iTunes, featuring candid conversations with leading voices like AOL CEO Tim Armstrong, Goldman Sachs' CIO Marty Chavez, the team behind the hit TV show Empire, Shark Tank investor Mark Cuban, and presidential candidate Hillary Clinton. They're all on Recode Replay.